How can the most peripheral rural island and coastal communities deliver local economic success? How do these communities build capacity and capability when they must import the labour they need for so many specialist roles? And can local governments in the UK learn anything from the way the UK government deals with overseas territories in receipt of annual budgetary aid? I'm David Marlowe. Welcome to this very, very special edition of LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable, enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on LED and placemaking today. And I'm Mike Spicer. David, I know that over the years you've spent a lot of time in British Overseas Territory, so I think I'm going to let you have the privilege of setting the scene for today's episode. It's something of a cliche in uh, LED and placemaking that every place will claim it's unique. And I suppose like all good cliches, there is a large element of truth in that. But if I was to look back over my career and do some sort of hierarchy of places I have lived and worked in, in terms of how unique they are, St Helena would have to be at or very near the top of that league table. And I think for listeners who may know very little about St Helena, I'm, I'm going to have to take a couple of minutes just to sort of set the scene. It's a relatively small, very remote, very, very dramatic volcanic island in the South Atlantic. It's located about a third of the way between the west coast of Africa and the east coast of South America, with a population of around 4,000 people. I mean, it has had a range of constitutional forms over the centuries, actually, but has been administered by Britain since the 17th century. And today it's a British overseas territory, with the local residents being full British citizens. The island really does have a, a rich and interesting history, but maybe it's best known in the UK and Europe as the place where Napoleon was exiled and died after the Battle of Waterloo. Now, for centuries, the island only had sea access, but an airport was built and opened in the early 2010s, uh, funded with UK aid. And it was a huge investment in per capita terms. And I've sort of seen the business cases, and it was intended to enable the island to graduate to financial self-sufficiency, mainly through tourism development by the 2040s. But for various reasons, this strategy quickly became undeliverable. And it was actually in 2018, I was asked to lead what was termed an independent economic review to work with both the British and St. Helena governments to look at the options going forward. And I mean, I am grateful to uh, DFID, the Department for International Development, as the UK aid department was then called, uh, and the saints, as St. Helena residents are called, for enabling me to make a wonderful first visit to the island in 2018. And then I had follow-up visits in the two subsequent years. And I don't think I'll go into all that work in further detail now, but I mean, it really was amongst the most stimulating professional and refreshing personal episodes for me of those years. I learned a hell of a lot, and I genuinely have always felt there's a lot of insight from St. Helena and the Saints that has relevance and read across to all the sorts of work that we do and our colleagues do. And although our provocations at the beginning of the episode majored on peripheral, rural, and coastal communities, I would argue the learning would go well beyond those as well. Of course, I made many friends, some of whom I'm still in contact with, 
And no one was more supportive of me professionally and personally during those visits than Susan Obey, who is the chief secretary, effectively head of the St. Helena Public Service, and the first saint to hold that position substantively, with typically the British tending to appoint chief secretaries previously. So, I mean, literally since we started LED Confidential, it's been a dream of mine to do an episode around St. Helena and what we can learn from the island that can help us in our work wherever we may be. And I'm genuinely thrilled that Susan has agreed to join us. So, Susan, I'm sure my, my introduction has only scratched the surface, but I hope it's done some justice to setting the scene about the island. And I mean, as is typical in LED Confidential, where would you like to take the conversation in the next 40 minutes or so? Uh, and what do you think is of interest for local economic development and place-making professionals worldwide in your experience? I know you actually have a lot of LED experience yourself directly and in the experience of the island. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a very sort of big welcome. And But I, I want to say how pleased I am to actually be able to take part in, in this podcast today. Living on an island, of course, is by virtue of the fact that we're an island in the middle of the Atlantic, thousands of miles from anywhere, means that the ability to be able to interact is is not always easy with with colleagues, obviously across the globe, but also you, you do tend to feel extremely isolated. And again, as with all small, small communities, sometimes you get bogged down with what's happening in your sort of immediate arena and it's difficult sometimes to lift the lift your head up and look above the parapet. So I'm always pleased to be able to have this kind of engagement and to be able to talk with other professionals uh, about St. Helena. I think I'd like to start by saying that St. Helena is, is, as you rightly say, a very small island, but we are a very, very positive community. And we feel that we with a little bit of support and help, we, we can actually make a go of becoming more sustainable. I think we've, there's a lot of practice that goes on on the island that is uh, possibly shareable, if you like, and we've started reaching out to other overseas territories in that regard. But maybe if, if, if I start with where we are now and, and talk a little bit about that, and then we can sort of go forward and step back a bit. So at the moment, um, we're halfway through a new ministerial form of government. Now, David, you will recall when you were here um, during your visits that we operated what was known as a committee system of government where 12 councillors were elected by the people and they then elected five of that number to become executive council. We went through a constitutional reform in 2021 and we, uh, it, it was voted uh, overwhelmingly that we move towards a ministerial form of governance. Now, this is quite important for us because it starts us on a journey, if you like, uh, that journey that I talked about earlier, which is about the island becoming more self-sustaining. And I, I have to say that it's a real opportunity for us now because it's almost as though you're starting with a bit of a blank page. So you can determine exactly how we want to position ourselves, if you like, within uh, not just the island, but also as part of the British family, part of the overseas territories, and in fact, part of the 
community of, of, of small territories who are trying to get ahead alongside of the super challenges, if you like, that impact on most small island developing states, as it were. The ministerial government, when it was introduced, has done one very, very key thing for us. And that is, it means that we now have what I would consider to be strong political leadership and accountability. And that is really important because, David, you will recall when you were here recently, the committee system was fine to an extent. However, it lacked political leadership and it didn't allow for political accountability in the same way that a ministerial system does. So that has been a huge step forward, a huge change for us in the last two years. And it's uh, obviously, you know, the first period of government. It's a learning curve, a very steep learning curve, both for the politicians and also for us as a public service in terms of how we respond to that challenge. But I think what comes out of that is the ministerial vision for the island, which is that we want to create an island that builds on the values, if you like, that uh, we associate with, and also allows us to be able to become a bit of a blueprint because we're starting a number of things. You know, we're starting our economic development story, and we we want to be able to do it in a way that builds on lessons that other remote communities have experienced in their journey. So that's where we are at the moment. The, the ministerial vision is very much based around sustainability. It's around recognizing and valuing our blue and green agenda. And I'll sort of throw in a little bit here to say that St. Helena has, has, is, is home to more than 30% of the UK families biodiversity, for example. We're able to boast the oldest land reptile in Jonathan the Tortoise. We are visited on a regular basis by the whale sharks. It's one of the few places in the world where you can swim in the ocean and be able to see whale sharks, uh, dolphins, turtles, all sort of within touching distance. And it's, it, it's, it's something that we're very proud of, but it's also something that we want to share but do it in a way that means that we don't degrade the offering that we have. And I mean, in these days of climate change and discussions, um, the recent COP28 discussions, et cetera, we recognize that, that those are values that are extremely important to us and the kind of things that we want to be able to make sure that we retain sensible stewardship so that there is always going to be that availability for future generations. Alongside of that, we, we also recognize that community plays a huge part in how we define ourselves. And it's really important to us as well that as we go forward and as we develop, that we don't lose sight of those values that define what saint lenians are or saints as we call ourselves. Can I, can I jump in on, on, a, on a couple of things there, Susan? One is that I think many of the listeners to this show will see an echo in your recent constitutional changes, in some of the recent constitutional changes in local government in England in particular. So 
You know, for example, we've had the move from cabinet government to mayoral government in Greater Manchester and some of our other uh, big cities. Uh, that feels like there's you know, potentially a parallel there. Uh, and I'd be interested to get your take on whether you've experienced, as I think most cities have, a kind of change in the nature of the relationship with the UK government. So having that kind of focus around a single person you know, you you start to have a different type of relationship with the UK government. And then secondly, as you were talking about the kind of the new outlook and strategy for St. Helena post-constitutional change, very much about kind of leveraging the natural assets that the island has, what are some of the, the challenges and opportunities around that? Again, for our listeners in, 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 in the UK, who are also pursuing strategies that are really about leveraging their natural environment for their economic development. It'd be great to get some of your experience and learning around how that strategy is, is going. So first of all, let me let me go back on the, uh, the idea of the change, the constitutional change. And I think for us, perhaps the most stark change is having a minister, a chief minister for the island in increases, if you like, the leverage that we have with both the UK government and also other UK overseas territories, because you have an individual that you're able to identify with and talk directly with. And that has been perhaps the most significant and most positive outcome of the, the well, one of the most positive outcomes of changing the system of government. We've noticed it, for example, in recent joint ministerial councils, when governments of the overseas territories get together on an annual basis and meet with the UK government. And that has been extremely beneficial for us because the ministers are able to take ownership and be, are able to perhaps express more forcibly than previous iterations of, of, of the kind of government that we've had in a way that is more impactful. And they're meeting as equals, if you like. So they're able to have talks minister to minister as opposed to elected member minister. And, and that, I think, has been the most significant and positive outcome of, of, of the constitutional reform. In terms of your, your other question about leveraging natural assets and the challenges and the opportunities, there are always challenges. Our, our biggest challenge is our isolation, obviously. A further challenge for us is, is being able to have access to, to finance uh, in order to be able to do a lot of the work streams that are necessary in order for us to be able to not just leverage our natural assets, but also make sure that our natural assets are protected in a sensible and sustainable way. So challenges around uh, funding, challenges also in relation to good practice, understanding what's happening elsewhere, and also in terms of getting the expert or the specialist advice that we need. And, and I have to say that St. Helena has actually done very well in that regard because I think we are open to working collaboratively. We've been really fortunate in terms of the, the, the interest that that has generated. Uh, we have, for example, the Blue Belt Program, which supports our aspirations in terms of our marine and maritime uh, agendas. Uh, we, we have CSSF funding, uh, which supports our biodiversity agenda, particularly in relation to our cloud forest. So in terms of being able to attract 
support and funding, we're very lucky. But it does mean uh, that you have to go out and actively seek and campaign for such funding. Uh, I would say that, that that's the that's the biggest challenge for us. We're we're also open, obviously, to to threats. For 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 the moment, we've had to restrict access to our cloud forests because of pathogens that have been brought in simply because uh, obviously uh, people travel, they come into the island and so on. And that has threatened the sustainability of, of a lot of our, our endemics. Um, so that's another challenge for us that we have to overcome. And it's, it's about getting the balance right in terms of how much we're able to make available so that people are able to experience these wonderful assets, if you like, in their natural state and getting the balance in terms of making sure that in doing that, that we don't inadvertently damage those assets. I, I mean, I think this is really fascinating, Susan. And and I think that one of the challenges that you mentioned, which was about access to finance, um, you know, is very, very acute. And, and again, for listeners who aren't aware, I mean, the St. Helena budget does receive very significant grant in aid from the UK government. And one of the things that did actually strike me when I first visited, uh, and, and we had lots of discussions about this, is that the type of specialist niche tourism model um, that you're rightly developing um, to both sustain and showcase your sustainable and your green and blue assets is inevitably not going to have the volume to achieve a financial self-sufficiency type of solution, certainly not in, in the conceivable future, which obviously then means that you know each year you do have to negotiate financial settlements with the UK government. And that has a lot of resonance, I would have to say, with local government here, which is going through huge financial hardship, really, uh, I mean, what, what sorts of advice and lessons can local authorities and indeed mayoral combined authorities, for that matter, uh, take from St. Helena's experience of negotiating financial settlements with the UK government in a situation where with the best will in the world, it's going to be a real stretch for the economic strategy to help you, you know, to achieve full self-sufficiency and surpluses? Okay, so it, yes, absolutely. It's difficult because as an overseas territory, we are funded, if you like, through the Overseas Development Assistance um, Programme that the UK government runs. And that programme obviously comes with defined parameters in terms of what the uh, the aid is 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 to be utilized for and as an overseas territory we perhaps don't quite fit that model because we've got different needs different challenges and different aspirations now uh, first of all what i will say is that we're really grateful that we do have the support of the uk government because as you rightly point out david the financial aid that we get from the uk government makes up the majority of our annual budget. And uh, it's interesting that you asked that because we've just had uh, a visit from the uh, FCDO, the, the, the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, as a part of our annual discussions around, um, around aid. 
And it's about being able to articulate to the UK government what the benefit is that that aid actually provides, but more importantly, how that aid also contributes to the overall UK global family agenda. Um, and that's that, that's something that we're very keen to do as well. We're very conscious that we're part of the UK family and we're very keen to ensure that our development is sensitive, if you like, to the to the UK agenda and that what we're doing is able to add to that agenda as opposed to take away from it. Now, it's it's difficult when you're a small population. I mean, we're, we're just over 4,000 people here. We're an aging population. And so uh, that's, if, if I go back to the earlier conversation, that's a huge challenge for us at the moment because what we have seen is since 2021, we've seen a marked decline in the working age population to the point that unless we're able to reverse that trajectory, uh, we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult position. Um, and I would suggest that our dependence on the UK government will, will likely increase if we're not able to change that. So conversations that we have with UK government center around the, the challenges that we face and also center around um, how we can actually move and overcome those challenges. But the other side of it as well is it's taking it, it takes cognizance of the current situation in the UK. So we recognize that the UK government and the UK economy is going through a challenging period at the moment. And so therefore we recognize that that has limitations and it places limitations in terms of how much UK government is able to, if you like, distribute to to overseas territories, uh, um, uh, particularly those in, in receipt of um, grants and aid. So we are very mindful of that, but at the same time, we also recognize that time is not necessarily a luxury that we have, particularly if I think about the challenges of the aging population and the declining working age demographic. That is is really huge for us because it means that our fragility is, is heightened as a result of that. And I have to say that from the discussions that we've had in in the last two years, the UK government is is very conscious of of that situation here as well. One of the things that we're looking to do, for example, is is changing our immigration, recognizing that. Another factor in most small remote communities is that people will always want to leave and go away and experience life in in, in, in the big cities and 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 uh, the the land of fast internet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those will always be poor factors for small rural communities, and um, this is a huge challenge for us to deal with. But we also recognise that was for many St. um you want you know who want to leave and explore the bright lights and 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 the, the fast the fast life there are people who also want to step back and perhaps see St. Helena as a place where you can actually um, decompress if you like and get back in touch with with nature I know it sounds a bit cliche, but but that there, there is that possibility here, and also to live a much simpler life. But at the same time, 
be able to stay connected to the rest of the world. So it's it's about balancing things. And, and that's the biggest challenge for us as a small community and as an overseas territory. It's about getting the right balance, but more importantly, being able to paint that picture to the UK government. Because we, you know, we're very conscious that when you're sitting in in London or in East Kilbride, as as uh, FCDO does at the moment, it's it's thousands of miles away, and it's very difficult to understand the level of challenge that is being experienced on a daily basis, particularly when you're trying to um, run an island and provide the same level of services. And I think that's the difference for us. You know, if I think about the, the county council system or the UK sort of domestic um, system, it's it's very different because we have to be completely self-sufficient in, in a number of areas that other jurisdictions wouldn't necessarily have to. Uh, and I think that was brought home to us very acutely during COVID uh, and the fact that we, we had to be as self-reliant as we possibly could be simply because of our isolation. Thanks, Susan. I just wanted to, to pick up on this point about how you manage kind of inflows and outflows and, and thinking about the challenges of peripherality. So thinking about kind of the, the challenges of self-sufficiency, what what kind of things is St. Helena doing or has it done in the past um, to develop the local skills and expertise within the island with, with St. Helenians to, to foster that? Um, or to support that self-sufficiency. I'm just, it, I think our, our listeners would really kind of value an insight into how you operate kind of programs to um, kind of upskill you know, the, lo- the local workforce in in cases of extreme peripherality, you know, where you have those challenges of people being pulled out and, and, and you know, the, the remoteness might make it difficult to bring people in. Part of the um, the assistance that we get from the UK government is also it also includes an element of what is referred to as technical cooperation. We we, we refer to it as the TC uh, program, and under that program, we're able to employ professionals to come in and to work with us. So everybody who comes in under that program has built into their terms of reference their requirements to be able to upskill. And in, in most situations, the aim is always that they train local counterparts to be able to take on those roles when they leave. So it's a combination of one-on-one training. It's a combination of utilizing training programs. So for example, if, if I think about the Cloud Forest pro- project that we have at the moment, that project brings with it an element of training, access to expert advice. And what we have found is that that particular program has now really become um, a, a flagship, if you like, for local ownership. We have a team of people who work on that, who are all locals, who are very proud and very committed and, and dedicated. So, so that is, is largely how it works. We've also recently introduced a community college, which is designed to do a combination of upskilling um, in particular areas where we want to see development. So, for example, agriculture, fishing, and and areas such as that. Uh, and it 
it's so it's a combination of upskilling uh, applied to sectors within 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 the economy, but it's also obviously targeting individuals who want to become professionally qualified. And now, of course, with with the uh, connection to the cable, it means that we're able to access far more opportunities via the internet than we would have been able to do previously. That has been largely the, the model that we've applied. So a combination of, of one-to-one training, community initiatives, and utilizing the sort of project funding that we get, particularly, as I said, in relation to environmental projects. But what we are finding now is that because of the declining working age population, we're needing to rely on the TC program more for actually carrying out what we call line roles as opposed to that targeted uh, training and intervention. So that's becoming a challenge for us. And we anticipate that until we're able to encourage and have a, have a regime that allows more people to come into the island, that's going to be a balancing act that we'll have to manage as we go forward. You spoke a lot at the beginning about exchange of experience and, and exchange of knowledge. What, what sort of insights have you got from any exchange that you've had or any uh, contact that you've had with rural, peripheral and insular communities in the UK? And what do you think they've learned from from you? And, uh, you know, so I, I know that when I was there, you know, we spoke about places like the, uh, the Isles of Scilly or... Um, the uh, the Western Isles and so on. Have you had much um, exchange with uh, rural coastal communities in the UK? And and what's been most helpful out of those interactions? I have to confess that we haven't had um, very much contact, if if I'm really honest, David. And and the reason for that primarily has been that we've tended to link a lot more with with local local authorities. Uh, simply because they're able to support, if you like, and provide more of the expertise that we need in specific areas. So, for example, we, we've linked with Hampshire on policing, social care, education. Those are sort of key areas for us where we're able to get the kind of expert support and advice. We are tending to link more with the other overseas territories and one of the things that we have been able to do, for example, is to share with with other territories the practice that we're developing in areas such as mental health, for example, our testing in terms of the the, the kind of testing that we've been able to to roll out uh, in relation to COVID and, and and other health hazards, if you like. And so, some of our staff, if you uh, have have gone off and shared practice there, but we haven't actually specifically linked with small rural communities within the UK. And that is only because of the particular challenges that we're facing at the moment in terms of needing to link with larger authorities so that we can get the kind of support that we need at this point. Well, that's actually a really good answer. And I mean, I certainly do hope that out of this podcast does come some new interest in 
St. Helena and in the challenges that you're facing and how you're facing them. And you know, I think we've we've already had, uh, you know, in the last 30 minutes, uh, if you like an appeal, if you're a digital nomad and you want to decompress, St. Helena is an option. And I, I think it is worth saying to you know, rural and coastal communities in the UK that there would be a lot to to learn and exchange from from some sort of interaction. And uh, but I do also understand how you know the critical mass of a large county council can offer you you know technical expertise that maybe small communities uh, in the UK can't. You spoke about the stresses and the tensions of retaining working age population on the island. Well, what do you actually think the solutions might be over the the short and medium term? And I know that when I was last there, yeah, we were having discussions that that actually what could do more to develop St. Helena than possibly anything else would be some demographic change uh, done very sensitively and in a very balanced way. But uh, what are the solutions to declining working age population? Because that is something that is shared by a number of UK communities. Absolutely. In the past, there, there was always this idea that we should do more to attract St. Helenians to come back to the island. You'll be aware, David, from our sort of previous discussions that there's quite a large St. Helenian diaspora sort of dotted all over the place, largely, obviously, in the UK. But I think there's a growing tendency for St. Helenians to go much further afield. The other side of this as well is one of the things that's contributed to the change in demographic has been that, like many other small islands, we've tended to export, if you like, our, our labor, and not deliberately so, but within the South Atlantic, a lot of our people go and work on Ascension, which is one of the closest islands. A number of them are working in the Falkland Islands. And because of the the terms and conditions that those people go there to work under, they are obviously far better than what we could offer to people here. So I think there is a growing recognition now among St. Anilians that we we can't just rely on trying to encourage and attract St. Helenians to come back to the island simply because at this point, we're not exactly a very attractive, we don't have an attractive offering, if you like, to St. Helenians to come back to. However, it's it, what we're doing, so the government is utilizing a, a far more diversified approach. So it's recognizing that, yes, we do want to attract St. Helenians back, but we also need to target other areas, other labor markets. And that's one of the things that we're finding at the moment is proving to be, um, in, in a very small way, proving to be quite useful. So we're linking a lot with, with Africa. We, we've got a number of people who are working here who are South, are South Africans. We're targeting the Philippines and we're having to broaden our offering in terms of encouraging people from other jurisdictions to come in. Uh, people who have skills, people who come in with fresh ideas, but who are also uh, able to recognize that St. Helena has a quality of life um, that is perhaps 
attractive to them. And so that's one of the reasons why a lot of people from South Africa is keen uh, are keen to come here. Uh, you will be aware that we used a largely South African workforce when the, when the airport was being built. A number of those uh, workforce stayed on the island, have now integrated into the community and have, have be, and, and are offering uh, you know very, very useful skills to 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 the labor market. So that for us, I think, is where we need to be moving. It's it's about recognizing that we, we're not able to open up and uh, we don't have the infrastructure at this point to be able to encourage thousands of people to come into the island. We have to do it in a very planned way. And we use our shortage occupation skills list uh, to be able to drive, if you like, immigration in that way. And it is, it's, it's very small at the moment, but it's proving to be positive. And I would suggest that it sort of chimes with, if you like, how St. Helena actually started. You know, the island does not have an indigenous population. We're a real melting pot of, of various people who have uh, visited the island over the centuries. And, and that's who we are. And this is what we're finding now is that, you know, we, we, we can't do it entirely on our own. And there's a broader recognition that we have to be far more open and encouraging people from other countries to come in and work with us. But what we do have to be very um, clear about is that we want people to come in and work with us. We're very clear about how we want to develop. And we want to attract people who are keen to join us on that journey. I mean, thank you very much. I mean, that's, that's uh, we are drawing towards the uh, the close. And in a way, that's uh, some really great closing remarks there. I mean, Mike, were there any final points that you wanted to make? Uh, so thanks, David. I mean, I, I just I find the whole thing fascinating. I think particularly kind of that trying to get that balance between kind of indigenous development if you can put it that way and managing external influences and, and being able to present to the rest of the world from that geographical location i think that the listeners to our show will draw a lot from the episode i think they'll see some echoes in, in what you've said susan particularly around some of the constitutional changes that you talked about particularly around how you you know, look at what you've got and make the best of of, of what you've gotten and having been quite clear-eyed about that. I think one of the things that uh, struck me, and I don't know uh, whether this resonates with you, Susan, but one of the things that the economic development consultants like me or David often try to say to local areas in the UK is, you know, think, think clearly about what it is that your local area really is good at, you know, that, that really is kind of specialized in the assets that you really have and sometimes it can be difficult to see those clearly from within the UK because of course there are so many funding streams that local areas have to bid into and sometimes they have to play that game to kind of align with whatever the priorities of the day happen to be but I think what what some of our listeners will draw from this episode is actually just how clear-eyed and, and conscious you can be of your situation in St. Helena. And, and I think there's a lot to be learned from that. I think that's right. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll leave the, the last word to Susan, because I think Mike's actually hit on a really good point, which is, um, you know, St. Helena is very 
clear about what you are good at and what you do offer the wider UK family and indeed the world, I think the big challenge challenges are amplified in St. Helena, you know, whether that's about demographic change, whether that is about environmental um, sustainability and balance, or whether it is about um, fiscal sustainability and balance. And I mean, my last word would be to you know, encourage listeners to take an interest in St. Helena because it does offer, as it did offer me in the years that we worked together, you know, the opportunity to consider all of the dimensions of a full country, but just a very, very human scale. Absolutely. And and I totally agree with you. I think be in in a situation where you are sometimes subject to a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned advice, it is always very difficult uh, for a small community to be focused in terms of taking from that advice what it uh, what will work for you in in or what will work for the community in that particular circumstance it's it's really about being clear where you want to go having that longer term vision for what it will look like in say 20 or 30 years time um, and then having the courage to say actually this is not likely to 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 work for us and so we, we we would prefer not to go down that route. And that is quite challenging, I think, for any community, particularly small rural communities. So be clear, but also don't be afraid to say, actually, no, I don't think that's going to work. That's, what, that's a wonderful point at which to end. I mean, thank you so much for giving up your time to talk with us. Uh, as you know, I'm always going to be a, a huge advocate and an appreciator of of St. Helena, and I'm sure that Mike will now be the, the fan club. I mean, thank you very much. And, yo, you've been listening to LED Confidential. Please give us feedback on what we think is a very, very special episode. And uh, we hope you'll be listening to us and communicating with us again very, very soon. <laughs>